text with you this morning uh, where we talk about uh, the reality that the righteous live by faith. And, and to start this out, this is such an amazing concept because it impacts us so deeply. So I have a beautiful wife, um, two boys, and there were a few crushes before my wife when I was in my teens. And our crushes really just reveal how desperate we can be to gain someone's approval. And so I remember one that was going on a mission trip. So I took all this money and I put it in a heart-shaped box and I gave it to her, and there was no note or anything. I, I, in hindsight, he should have, past Gavin should have been more intentional with his romantic gesture. Uh, but she was like, oh, thank you. And I was like, she loves me. She didn't. Um, and that continued through my life. And Kelly, my wife, was really the first person that I didn't really bring anything to the table with her. And so the first gift I gave her in contrast was I knew that she liked organization. So I took a cutting board and I said to myself, I'm going to make an organizational device for her. So I went to Mill End Fabric and I cut up a whole bunch of squares of fabric. And I didn't really know how to sew, at least fast, so I hot glued it on because... <laughs> Hot glue is like duct tape and Windex. You can use it for many things, and, you know, fabric repair is one of those things. And I gave it to her. It was a Christmas present. Uh, I'm pretty sure she threw it away that day. Maybe I'm wrong. And to throw something away on Christmas really shows that you don't like something. Uh, but she, our love was not based off of what I did for her. It was based off of a devotion to each other. And in the same way, how good is it when you are loved uh, and you can have faith in that love, not based on your actions, not based on your works, but when you know that you are loved. And that's how God wants us to see this passage. He wants us to see how he loves us and how he calls us to trust in that promise, which is called faith. And my hope is that you will see that the righteous live by faith and that we would see that it's not by works, it's not blind faith, it's thought through, it is faith, it takes, it takes a, a, a leap, so to speak, and that we do see our actions shift because of our faith in that thing, but it's all because we trust God that he is who he says he is and he, his promises are real and true. So that's what we're talking about. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, verse 13 through 25. We're going to overview it a couple of times, and my encouragement would be, if you don't have a Bible and you want to look at some of this stuff, take this, and not just to borrow it, but take it, keep it. One of the reasons we do offering is we buy Bibles all the time, and I think if we're buying three to four cases of Bibles a year, somebody's taking those Bibles, and they might be making a fort somewhere, I don't know. If they are, it sounds like a cool fort. I would love to see a picture of that fort. But otherwise, we would love for you to read the Bible and look at what Jesus says about himself. Because a lot of what we do here is we, we expect that some of you in this room today are seekers or skeptics. And we welcome that. And we're grateful that you're investigating who Jesus is. Or maybe you're a Christian that just needs to dive deeper in your faith. And we want to help with that too. So take this home. But to start, we're going to look at the thesis statement, the overall statement of the book of Romans in chapter 1. So we started with this at the very beginning of our series, and it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
So let's break down these phrases. Righteousness is not this arrogance that you approach life because you're better than other people. That's how I understood righteous to mean for a while. It doesn't mean that you are stuck up, proud, self-righteous. It doesn't mean that you only can do a list of 300 things and this is all you can do and you can never have fun. Righteous means one of two things. It means that you have right character or right standing. And the way that God gives us his righteousness is by both being righteous and then giving us his righteousness to make us right before him. But that's not where it ends. Because if it ended there, we can just check off righteousness as something we need to do. As, okay, become righteous before God so that God's not mad at me anymore. Check. Next on the list, buy a home. That's not how righteousness works. Righteousness is given to us through what Jesus has done on the cross. But then that affects our relationship with God. It affects it because it opens the door for us to be restored in right standing with God. So when you are saved by Jesus, it means not only that you stand innocent before God, but it also means my relationship between creator and and me has been restored. My dependence on God has been restored. My being God's people, God being my God, that's been restored. And I believe it's Galatians, Paul says, we are sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So now I'm a child of God. That's been restored. Abraham is called a friend of God. And here it says that we are in the line of Abraham. And it's sort of like any friend of Abraham's is a friend of mine. So now we're friends of God. And so that, that moment, that sacrifice of Jesus justified us it made us right before God but that was in a sense the beginning because it opened the door for our relationship with God to begin anew again and this is why uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer really cool German pastor from from back during World War II he led a seminary that was training up other pastors and he would ask his seminary students uh, do you love God and they would respond with we believe in God and he would say yes but do you love God I'm not here to just give mental assent to who God is. Do you love God? Because if you love God, that's an indication that he has made you righteous because your relationship and orientation with God has completely changed and now you're a son, a daughter, a friend, one of his people, dependent creation. You have his spirit. You have eternal life. All of these things are yours. So do you love God or do you assent to belief in God? Because that's the difference between belief and faith. Faith involves belief, but it's not enough to just believe. James says that demons believe in God. I don't think they're getting saved. I hope not. Uh, They don't want to be, it doesn't seem. Um, Faith is an unwavering commitment to something or someone to, to be true. That's what faith is. It involves not just believing something is fact, but it involves believing and trusting it to the point that it would even affect your actions because you have faith in that thing. And we see that all over the place. In fact, I would argue you don't have to be a Christian to have that unwavering faith. Everyone has faith, unwavering trust in someone or something. And I'm not, if you're an agnostic or an atheist and you say, no, that's not true, 
I'm not saying that you have some sort of belief system that you have to submit to, but I, but I will say you have already submitted yourself in trust to someone or something, even if that's yourself, or worst case scenario, even if it's just a hope that you wish you could trust someone with unwavering trust. So everyone has faith. And so here when it says the righteous shall live by faith, it's saying the key phrase of our entire worldview, uh, the entire basis that God could save us and give us life is that God's righteousness is given to those that put their trust in him. That's what that means. And so with that, we're just going to look at that over and over and over, over. The righteous shall live by faith. The first thing we're going to look at is the righteous shall live by faith, not by works. So let's, let's look over verses 13 through 15 again. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, here's what he's talking about. There's a, a very common worldview. Most of us probably share it. I'm, I'm sure it's in there as well, that we need to have good works to be pleasing to God. And when Paul talks about the law here, he's talking about the righteous requirements and standards that God has set up in the Bible of, of what it means to be holy like God. So it, it exists and it's good and perfect. But what this is saying is that it was never intended to save us and that we were never intended to use works as the means that we approach God and that we are made right before him. Or to say it another way, um, Adam, who's a, a leader here, he overheard a conversation at Savers where some, these two people were talking and one guy said, I, you know, I, I believe that if I'm a pretty good person and I believe that God's a good guy, uh, I'm good. When I see God one day, he'll totally understand and we'll be cool with each other. And what I'm telling you is uh, this verse contradicts that completely that if it is the adherents of works who are to be the heirs of salvation, faith is null and the gospel is void. That's another way of saying this. Another way of saying this is Hebrews 11.6, which will be on the screen behind me, that says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so another way to say it would be, no, it's impossible for you to please God with your works. Impossible. And there's a lot of reasons for this that we're just going to break down real quick. First, because works were never, ever, ever, ever meant to impress God. They were only, the good ones, were only meant to reveal to you the righteousness of God, how good he was, and how messed up we are. And there's two examples to show this to you. One is, I love this uh, nature path that's at Rancho San Rafael Park. Uh, it's on the east side. And there's a nature trail that loops around creeks and the, the valley right there and, and the mountains, the bushes, the trees, the wildlife. It's amazing. But it is a circle. And its purpose is to show off the beauty contained in that, in that circle around you, the beauty of nature. If I then said, I am going to get to where I'm eating lunch in this circle, then you would call me a fool because that's silly. Because its purpose isn't a road to get to Burger King. 
uh, which I don't eat there, but as a food example, you can't get to Burger King from the nature trail. The nature trail is the nature trail. Burger King is Burger King. And in the same way, if you're trying to approach God through the law, you're walking in circles around the beauty of God and his standard, but that was not a path that was ever meant to lead to salvation. And you say, well, what if it was? What if I kept that perfectly? And I would say, no, because it's the wrong system to put your faith in. Because the second thing the law does is it exposes your imperfections. Uh, like I went to Rogers one time when I was looking at diamonds for, for my wife's engagement ring. And, and I'm a guy and I like shiny things and I'm easily distracted by shiny things. And so the guy shines a flashlight on the diamond and I'm like, wow, that's crazy with all the colors and the cuts and it's beautiful. But as, as much as it does that to highlight the beauty of God, the law does that in a flawed sense with us. That God, through the law, shines the light on me and on us and exposes that we are all broken broken by sin with a tendency to break others, or at least a desire to break others. And in the, the video that Pastor George from Reno Church, he talked about how, you know, it's, it's like trying to deadlift with broken arms and broken legs. And, and I'm, I'm kind of a... a I'm kind of a smart aleck, and I said then, but Tiger Woods did super good that one time he had a broken leg. It's, it's like this. It's like you're supposed to hit the mark, but not only can you not hit the mark, but there's something in us that just keeps taking shots at God. It's like every time we go to try to hit the mark, we look for God in the crowd, and we're like, ah! <laughs> and we're like, oh, just trying to keep our good works going. And, and there's just this rebellion in us that says, no, the law is not the road to get to God. You can't do it. It's too perfect. It was never meant for that. And you're already broken. It's like entering into a game that you know you can't win. That can seem kind of offensive because some of us might say, but I'm a really good person and God doesn't care about any of that. And I would say, no, but there's a reason. One is because if you don't have faith and if you earn it all by works, then there's no relationship. God is the only one who can save you. And in fact, it's faith in God that showcases his beauty. So if you look at verse 20 on the next page, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. When you have faith in God, it does a couple of things. It expresses relationship. Because when you say, I believe in a God, that will accept me for my good works. What you're really saying is, I believe in a God I don't have to trust. And God says, trust is the foundation of those that I save. Those that trust the salvation that I've put forward. If you say, no, I'm saved by my good works, you have subconsciously told God that you don't want him to save you. I want to save me. No God saves me. No, God doesn't want that for you. The picture he gives here is one of trust. John Piper uses an analogy where there's a, a, a man, a father, standing in a swimming pool, and his three-year-old son is standing on the ledge of the swimming pool, and he says to his son, jump. When the son jumps, it does two things. It says, I trust you, and it shows how strong the dad is. Like, look at that good dad for how well he caught him. Now, if you're a dad in here, you're flashbacking to the one time you didn't catch your child. But... <laughs> But we're talking about God here, so let's not take the analogy too far, okay? Um, so 
you showcase the strength and the ability of your father to save, to save you from the water, to save you whatever you're jumping from. But if, if the three-year-old at that point says, no, and runs away, it does a couple of things. First, it really makes your dad, his feelings are hurt. He says, what have I done? Like, second, he thinks, he's remembering that one time I dropped him. Third, um, but with God, what that does is it says, I don't trust you, and I'm not showcasing your beauty. I'm not showing you as a savior. I'm not showing how good you are to the world. That's how faith glorifies God. And that's how faith draws us into a relationship with God, the one that he has set up, that we would trust him as our God, God the Father, as our savior, as the one that we can trust. So it's important for us to drop the act that the righteous shall live by works. The righteous shall live by really good works. No, the righteous shall live by faith, not by works. But the second thing we got to talk about then is, what does that look like? I would say the righteous shall live by faith and faith in the promise of God. So let's re-go over verses 16 through 25. And what we're going to see is he pulls in a guy named Abraham and he's going to talk about us. And we're both on opposite ends of the spectrum with Jesus in the middle. So here's what's going on. Verse 16, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, so here's what's going on. Abraham, we're just going to give a quick snapshot of his story, but, but he's one of, I would say, the most influential characters in all of human history. Um, Christians, Muslims, and Jews all find their origins in him, and most Middle Eastern countries would say, yeah, Abraham was our founder. So he's an important guy, but at this point, he is this old Clint Eastwood, semi-nomadic uh, rancher that has lots of cattle, and he's got hardened hands, and if, if you can think of that in your mind and picture that kind of person, you know they're tough as nails, and you know they don't waver on opinions very often. And that's why Abraham's story is so incredible, because at some point God meets him and says, I am going to make you the father of many nations, and through your heir, the whole world is going to be blessed. And it says that Abraham believed God had faith in God, put his unwavering trust in God to fulfill his promise. And then God said at that moment, I am declaring you righteous. Your standing before me has completely changed based on the promise and your response to that promise. And now you are a friend of God. That's Abraham's story. And Abraham, he's doing this based off of three things. I would say he's doing it based off of the character of God that he's seen in the past. He's doing it off of the future hope. And he's also doing it with the present limitations in mind. So if you see in verse, um, verse 17, it says, The God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So first, he has a knowledge of who God is. 
his character. He's seen him move and work before. There's tradition about him. He's not just basing his faith off of nothing. Like he hears a voice one day in the wilderness. He says, okay, I'll move halfway across the known world and then God's gonna make me a a great nation. That's not what happened. He, He met with the living God and at that moment he believed and he trusted and God counted that to him as righteousness. And the second thing it did was God is calling him to believe in an impossible thing. But it's a hope and a promise that only God can fulfill. See, that's, that's how God gets around the whole works thing with us. He doesn't give us a promise that it's like either for the people who are screw-ups or the people who are really good at what they do. It's a promise that only God can fulfill. So there's no question on who you should have faith in and who your righteousness comes from. That's how God does it. And so God's promise is, I'm going to give you a son and through him the nations are going to be blessed. The present limitations. The one 100-year-old man and the 90-year-old woman have to conceive a child. Like, Abraham is, he's not crazy. It's not like he's looking at him being like, well, God said it, so I guess he's just going to make me 30 years old again and everything's going to go really smoothly. It was hard for Abraham to accept the full terms of what God said. So his faith in God never wavered. His promise never wavered. But Abraham also thought that there were ways that he could get to the promise on his own. He does it four times. Twice, he gives his wife to another king and says, she's my sister. You can marry her. Uh, I think, and I think there's good evidence based off of what scholars and and what people say, is that he's trying to find a way to get an heir. He's maybe acknowledging the problems with me. Like, he's being passive, he's not guarding his wife, there's a lot there, but I think one of the things going on is he is having a hard time believing in the full promise of God, your natural heir. Once he does it by hiring a a servant and basically does all the legal paperwork that he would take over, and once he does it by sleeping with uh, his wife's slave, which was an accommodation at the time. And that's the clearest time that he does it. And over and over, out of God's grace, God turns the situation around. And and truly, this is a tangent, but if you believe that the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful, wrathful God, uh, I'd like to point out that in every single time that God turned the situation around, uh, no blood was shed. Um, that he had mercy on foreign and pagan kings, on all of Abraham's children, um, that God had mercy and showed mercy to all of them um, because of the promise. And so just keep that in mind if that ever comes up. And so this is where we are, and it comes back at verse 24 and 25. Us also... Just like righteousness was counted to Abraham when he believed in the promise, same thing with us. What he's going to say here is Abraham believed in the promise that the Savior was coming through him. We look back on the promise that the Savior has come to us. Us also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So here's where we're at. Same thing. This is what our unwavering trust is based on. First, a future hope, and a crazy future hope. Because this is what Christians believe as a breakdown. We believe that God came to earth as a man and lived a perfect life and died for our sins, and then he rose from the dead. And you're saying, well, that's pretty crazy. And I'm like, no, it gets crazier. Then a whole bunch of people witnessed the risen Christ, and then he rose physically up into heaven to reign. You're like, wow, that's even crazier. Oh, no, it keeps going. 
Because then God gave the Holy Spirit to those that believed in him so they would become more like Jesus and they would be able to become more and more like God and have communion with God. And then you say, Gavin, weed was only legalized a couple months ago. I think you need to calm down. And I'm like, oh no, but it's crazier. Uh, then Jesus promised that he's going to come back and he's going to end sin and sickness and death for all time. That is the promise and the hope of a Christian. And the hope of the Christian ultimately leads us to say, not only do we have eternal life, not only do we live after our bodies die, but one day Jesus comes back and he gives us new bodies and he reunites us. That is the faith of a Christian. That is the faith of a Christian, that we have eternal life. And, and sometimes it's funny to talk about people, why are you a Christian? And, and sometimes it kind of gets weird. It's like he gives me hope, he gives me peace. And, and I'm like, wow, you are holier than me. I became a Christian because I wanted eternal life. Like, I became a Christian because of that promise, and God grew in my heart since then. But that is the promise that we hope in, that we've been absolved of sins, justified before God, and now we have union with Christ. But we look at the limitations, right? We aren't blind to the fact that sometimes it's hard to have faith. It's hard to have unwavering trust because we see our own limitations. We see that the evidence that we have, good evidence, was given historically. And so it's not something we can touch and taste right now or see. But we have faith. And part of that is because we trust the past faithfulness of God. That we see the testimony of what he's done in our life. Abraham only really had a couple stories from what God did back then. We have the, this whole compendium of salvation history in front of us. And what God did in the church. And then we see the evidences for the resurrection. That people died because they said that Jesus was alive. Like, I don't think that they were any more foolish than us, and I wouldn't die for a lie. So it's hard for me to believe that they would have died for a lie. And we see that the, the greatest hater of Christians becomes a Christian because he say he met the resurrected Christ. And then we see that the half-brother of Jesus starts to believe that his half-brother is God, which I don't know if you have any brothers and sisters, but if you think they're God, like, I don't know if you're getting a full picture of your brother and your sister, and most of you are shaking your heads like, no, I know my brother is not God. Great. <laughs> Take that and think how hard it would be for the brother of Jesus to believe that he was God. And then you have another evidence of the resurrection. And maybe even crazier is the opponents of Jesus were never in their generation able to produce evidence that Jesus hadn't resurrected. They had no evidence. Partly because they were covering for the guys that, that slacked on the job. But here's the thing. It's important to know that your crazy faith is married with reason. You can't, you can't take one or the other, and here's what I mean. You can't have blind faith. You can't just say, believe it, because it's real. Like, that's something that you can't do, because that kind of thing calls you to a faith that doesn't have any background or character behind it. And on the other hand, you can't just camp on reason and say, I will only believe on what I see. An example of both is, if I come to you, and I knock on your door, and I say, I'm giving you a million dollars. There's no way you should believe me. No way you should believe me. Because I'm not a millionaire, first off. And second, I have no track record of giving away a million dollars to people. But if Publisher Clearinghouse comes to your door and knocks on your door with their 1980s cameras and their, their balloons, and they say, we're giving you a million dollars, well, you believe them. You have faith in that. And I would say even faith would call you to action because then you might pay off your house before you're fully cashed in the check. 
You might make some financial plans because of that faith you have, and it's not unfounded. It's crazy that you won a million dollars, but it's reasonable because of the character of Publishers Clearinghouse and because they've done it in the past. I know, again, analogy. Um, So same thing, um, that we do not have a blind faith where we just trust without reason. And I would encourage you this. I've been there, and if there are things that scare you faith-wise, If there are things that shake you to the core, maybe you run away from them when you run into that argument and and you're just like, no, I just need to have faith in God. I just need to have faith with God and you haven't challenged yourself to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm warning you that a day is coming um, that either your faith will be shaken or it will be completely taken out. It's on you. You've got to look into this. It exists. If you have faith now, unwavering faith that God is who he said he is, we fear no truth. Like, we dig into this. If we're going to have unwavering faith that this is what saves us, then we definitely need to look at what we believe. And we need to look at the resurrection. We need to look at all of the things that are available to us. On the flip side, we don't just accept what's given to us by reason. Uh, Reason was really, there were some good things that came with the age of reason, and there were some bad things that came with the age of reason. And one of the bad things was a lot of the intangibles of life was lost for a while. For a while, the focus of intellectuals no longer dealt with intangibles like love or relationships. It only dealt with, nope, if I can't touch it, it's not real and I'm not even going to think about it. And if if you're here and you're an atheist and that's how you go about life, um, what I want to show to you is at some point, you've got to make a decision. Uh, You've got to make a call. God calls you to step out in faith. He doesn't bring in people who are on the fence because ultimately the people who are on the fence have never agreed to be in relationship with him. Um, I'm going to say a horrible analogy, and I apologize if this causes some fights later, um, but I have a big mouth sometimes, and every once in a while I'm just talking to a couple, and you're like, yeah, we've been going out for a long time, and they're, and they're not engaged or anything. I was like, how long have you guys been going out? 12 years. Um, and and I have been known a couple of times to say, so he won't commit to you. So he doesn't have faith in this relationship. He won't take the step. He won't do it. I'll preach. Um, And I'm sorry if that hurts, but in the same way with God, he calls us to make a decision. Not because he needs our works, but because he wants us to trust him. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live not by a blind faith, but a faith that has been reasoned through with doubts. But the righteous shall live by faith. Christians make a decision on who they follow. And Christian too, there's going to be nights where you're going to have doubts and you've got to go to bed and you don't have time or money to go and investigate what your doubts are. And there are going to be nights in the darkness of your soul that you say, God, I hope you're right. I hope you're real. And I'm going to cling to that Because what other hope do I have? And I will say, um, that's still faith. Cling to that. Don't abandon it. Don't abandon it when it gets hard. That's what it means that the righteous will live by faith. And so we see here that God has given us Jesus. He was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification, so we could be given relationship with God. And we see that in this too, we are called to live by faith. And, and this presents a little bit of a problem for me personally. I mean, right here in verse 20, it says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. That's really hard to say, wow, no one wavering? Like, I've had some nights of wavering. 
I've wavered. I feel like I've wavered. But I don't think that this is talking about, if you look at Abraham's life, I don't think this is saying, yeah, beyond a shadow of a doubt, without any reason to believe it, he trusted God 100% through the way. There are nights where he cried out to God and said, how are you going to fulfill your promise? I'm still childless. I don't get it, God. Those are real. Those are good. Living by faith means not that we work it out and then one day when it's not working out, we drop it. It means, okay, my faith, my unwavering trust is in a God who wants relationship with me. I'm going to work it out with him. Um, Because if he's going to put in the time and energy to resurrect me one day, I bet that he's willing to listen to me now. In fact, that's what scripture says, that we can approach the throne of God with confidence. And so with that, there's a few practical things that you could do to be like, well, where am I at with my faith? And where am I at in my trust with God? I'm going to give you some questions, and then I'll, I'll give you a couple of things that you can actually take as actions. One, where do you need to shore up your faith? Like, what's difficult? Where are you operating blindly? Like, where do you know that you have a blind spot um, that you need to pour some time into? And if, if you're not a Christian, what are, your, what are your biggest challenges about becoming a Christian? There's resources, there's people you can talk about this stuff with. Uh, where do I need to declare myself? God calls for us to declare our faith. Uh, Jesus met with a man named Nicodemus who was a teacher of the law. And he was a skeptic slash seeker And Jesus was willing to meet with him at night to answer his questions, to give him time to process. But at some point, Nicodemus knew, I've got to make a decision. I've got to to commit one way or the other. And Nicodemus chooses to follow Jesus. And strangely enough, is one of two disciples that shows faith when Jesus is currently dead. He's one of the two men that held Jesus' dead body and expressed faith and buried him and showed kindness. Um, And so... God wants us to declare ourselves. Some of you, like you haven't been baptized. Um, And I've talked to people why they've been baptized for like 5, 10, 20, 30 years uh, after becoming a Christian. And there's a few stories I was like, whoa, I get emotionally why you haven't been baptized. That's a, a pretty scarring experience. But for some of us, if we're honest, it's because we're leaving the back door open. I don't know if I can commit to this for my whole life, so I don't want to get baptized and declare that I'm actually for this. Like, but how often do we all do that? Like, brother or sister, if that's you, I'm not judging you. I think we all struggle with that. But my encouragement to you is that you have a community of people who are also sons and daughters of God, and they also believe in the resurrection, and we embrace you. Um, Because we worship Jesus, we don't expect each other to be perfect. Um, He's our savior. But I would call you, get baptized. Um, You know, if you you like it, then you should put a ring on it. Like, if you believe in Jesus, then get baptized. Like, <laughs> Beyonce could make that song. Um, other things to ask. Um, can I point to areas of my life that I say is impacted by my faith? I've really been struggling with this one lately. Where in my life is it clear that I'm a Christian? Cool. That's been hard. You know what it's done the last few weeks is it's caused me to, to take a few second guesses at my money. It's caused me to rethink a couple of my, my closest relationships in terms of how I'm loving my wife and my kids with the love of Christ. Um, and maybe most importantly, it's been calling me to repentance. Of There are some areas where because I'm made right with God, I have the confidence to go to others and tell them that I'm not right before them and, and try to amend that, not because I'm trying to gain their approval, but because I'm already approved by God. 
And these questions are hard questions. And so that's why there are some practical steps. Practical steps, get baptized. Practical steps, don't forsake the gathering of brothers and sisters together. Um, worship as often as you can and join a community group and ask them these questions in a group together. Uh, we don't just push community groups for our glory, we do it for your growth um, because we think it's commanded by God. Um, not because God's like, do this, do this, do this. You've already been saved by faith. The righteous will live by faith. But even Abraham had to, uh, had to express himself with the faith that he was given. Because of his faith in God, he believed it was possible for a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old to come together and create a child. And let's try not to go deeper than that, but think about it. Like, <laughs> like that's an act of faith. You had to believe the promise of, the God, of God in that moment. And in the same way, we do things because we believe in the promise of God. So we surround ourselves with people of faith. And we get baptized. Another thing that we need to do is we need to recognize the sins in our life that keep us from God. Um, some of them are small, but they, they still are ones that we commit them and we wait forever to go to God to forgive us. And Satan just uses that time like the My Soul No song to say, yeah, you can't get back to God now. Look at how horrible you are. And that's when we need to say to that voice, the righteous are saved by faith, not by works. Jesus did this for me, not me. Other sins, though, blind us to the growing gap that is emerging between us and God. Um, and because God created us to be in relationship with him, those have to be amended. And so these are a few things. They're not super specific because I, I acknowledge that every heart knows its own bitterness and each one knows its own joy. And God's doing a work in all of you who are Christians. And I would say, if you've come here as an investigator, in you too. Um, but I do think they need to be asked but never in the mindset that you have to please God. Because you didn't die on a cross and you don't have to. Jesus did. Jesus died on a cross so you'd be forgiven of your sins. Jesus rose from the dead to show you the promise that you would rise from the dead one day. And he did to promise you that you've been given new life now. And my encouragement to you is the righteous live by faith. You don't have to work for your salvation. God loves you. The best relationships are those based on love. Amen? The righteous shall live by faith. You don't have to be blind in your faith. You might need to commit, but you don't have to be blind. You don't have to be afraid of the truth. Amen? <laughs> there was, you sure? Like, amen? <laughs> like, like, God's word is truth. Like, God won't forsake you. And the righteous shall live by faith. I don't have to be afraid to investigate what it looks like to follow God in faith because he's already committed his undying love to me through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Give us faith, God. Encourage us by your love. Help us to walk in faith. And there's nothing else to say except praise you, Jesus. May the promise that you have given us life and new life constantly permeate our hearts, our minds, and our actions. In your name.